So if you got your Bibles, make sure you turn to Isaiah 66. And I need to find my sermon. There we go. You know, in the, in the beginning, when God created everything, God created everything in a state of perfection. It was perfect. In fact, when he got it all done, after he created man and, and everything and finished on the sixth day, he says everything was very good. Then we ruined it. We were tricked. We thought that we had a better idea that if we could just be like God, it would be everything would be perfect. We could make our own way. What we didn't quite comprehend is that when we did that, when we made that decision, and I obviously you and I were not in the garden, but through Adam as mankind, when that decision was made, we turned to what God had created as beautiful and as amazing and majestic. We turned into a place that resembled hell more than it resembles heaven. Now I know. God's beauty is still here. I look out today and I see the sun shining on the on the, the leaves that are changing. And yes, it is beautiful. It is gorgeous. That's God's grace allowing us. But if, in reality, if this world reflected our hearts, it reflected the sin that's in this world, this place would look terrible. It would be a place of desolation. The undercurrent of our existence is evil and corrupted. It got so bad, and I think mean, it's getting bad again, but it got so bad back in Genesis 6. Verse 5, it says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of his thoughts and of his heart was only evil continually. It wasn't just that they thought about evil every once in a while. It wasn't that, for the most part, they were, quote, good people. I always love when people say, well, that's a, they're a good person. I'm like, there's no such thing as a good person because the Bible says nobody is good. None of us are good. We may act good. I hope we do. I hope my kids act good. Sometimes I hope I act good. But as far as being a good person, none of us are good people. No one is good except for God. So God sees this. He sees this. So God had to do two things. He did decided that two things were going to happen. The first thing he did was that he put a limit on evil. Now, how did he do that? If, if, if God could limit evil... And if he didn't limit evil, it would be devastating to our world. But he was able to limit evil, and he did it in such a way because he had to judge it. If he judges evil, that limits it. But he did it with such a great amount of grace and mercy. Because that leads into the second thing he did. God promised that he would give us a way to restore our relationship with him. Because when Adam and Eve fell, it destroyed their relationship with him. It broke it. They no longer walked with him in the cool of the morning. They no longer could see him face to face. I think it's kind of interesting as you read through Scripture, there's a part in Genesis where it says, at this time, they began calling upon the Lord. And I'm thinking, wait a minute. Adam was in the garden. He talked to God. And you're telling me from between from that until this next time around time of Noah, that's when they finally started calling on the Lord. Yes. Every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So God made the way. He made a way that we could be in a righteous relationship again with the Father. And in order to do that, he had to sacrifice something. And he sacrificed his one and only special son.
See, the damage was our fault. We are to blame. We chose to follow the evil one's advice. And we, and we continue to fall for his tricks today. And we also follow the ways of the fallen sons of God. See that in Genesis 6. And even though, even though we were to blame, God took it on as his responsibility. Now, that's, a, that's probably a definition of a good father. Part of the definition. A good father is one who takes the responsibility for their children. If, if my kids do something wrong, they go, let's say they go to the neighbor's house, and they break the neighbor's window, I'll pay for it. Now, granted, I'm going to come after them, and they're going to end up paying for it. But I'm taking responsibility for it. It was my child, and they did. Now, there comes a time in my child's life I will no longer do that. But while they're young, I will do that to teach them a lesson. He paid, God paid the price, and it was a heavy price, the death of his unique son, Jesus Christ. And I say unique. Uh, in Scripture, it says the only begotten son. Now, understand, if you look at the Hebrew word begotten, one of the definitions of begotten is unique, which is interesting. He is the only unique son, because you and I are adopted sons and daughters of God. He is the only unique, uncreated son of God. See, we needed a Savior, and God provided one. And it is in Christ that we find our only hope in this world. So what we're going to see in Isaiah 66 is we're going to see the full impact of God's actions, how he, what he did, and actually also the full impact of our actions and our part in God's actions. We're going to see that Isaiah 66 is mostly about worship. But see, the problem today is that there is a lot of false worship that is so prevalent in our world. And our only hope is true worship in the one who saves. So let's look at Isaiah 66, verse 1. Thus says the Lord. Whenever it says, thus says the Lord, so saith the Lord. This is important. Heaven is my throne. The earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? See, in, in, inherent in our worship today is the idea that we must build bigger and bigger. Now, I, I'm not saying anything against large churches because I, there are a lot of big churches out there that are doing the right thing. Their pastors are preaching from Scripture. They're preaching the gospel. They're preaching sin and repentance. No doubt about it. They are getting people involved in discipleship relationships. It's not about the size. But I have to wonder, when we build a multi-million dollar building, and I'm not talking couple million, I'm talking 10, 20 million dollar building. I got to wonder, are they doing the right thing? Are they preaching the gospel? And I won't know unless I listen to them, unless I'm involved in that church and know people from their church. But what I'm saying, there's this idea, and, and that's the problem that I have encountered when I've, been, and when I've interacted with pastors and leaders from those churches. They think that since they're bigger, they're doing it the right way. And I'm saying, I'm a small church. I'm preaching the gospel. I'm preaching right from Scripture. We're trying to get people in discipleship groups. We have a group that meets on Saturday mornings. We don't do a lot of Bible. We, we do a lot of discipleship of being together and talking and, 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 and working through each other's lives. The women meet once a month. We have a small group in our house. Tim and Sherry have a small group with they, that they lead. We have Sunday school after church. We, we try to do the right thing. 
But this idea that we got to be bigger and bigger is wrong. There's nothing wrong with having a nice place to worship. But the danger lies in the idea that we can build a building and that we can wall God into that building. God is much greater than this building. God is so much bigger. He cannot be, can be contained within the four walls of any church. See, the Jews were obviously they're constantly tempted to be impressed by the temple. There's no temple there right now. The, the, the Dome of the Rock is there, and the Aqsa Mosque are there. There's no temple on the Temple Mount, and, and it grieves the Jews that there's no temple. They, they have everything planned out to rebuild one. They have all the vestments, all of the material, all the, all the gold items and, and things they use in worship. They have everything. They have a red heifer is born, and they have to slaughter this red heifer to, to bless these, these, these items to be used in worship. They are ready. They have a red heifer. Every year they have one ready to go. Throughout history, they've been tempted to look at the temple and think it's an amazing place, but just because God chose to place his name on it, and this is where he descended when he wanted to talk to the people and fellowship with them, the Jews misunderstood that, that they were a special protected people. They believed that, hey, God would never allow a foreign army to come in here and stomp down and trample down our temple. It will never happen. Prophet Jeremiah warned them. In Jeremiah 7.4, he says, Do not trust in these deceptive, word, these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Whenever something in Scripture is repeated three times, that's added an extra emphasis. It's almost like they're, this is the temple. Nobody can destroy it. God says, what is the building you build for me? Religion. Our religion will always tempt us to trust our religious practices you know, as our, or our temples to make us righteous. You know, even Christ's disciples struggled with that. They were walking by the temple, and, and his disciples, they look up and they say, look at this, Lord, look at this amazing building to God. Look how awesome it is. And then Jesus turns to them and says something they didn't expect. In Matthew 24, 2, he says, but he answered them, you see all these? Do you not? Truly, I say to you, there will not be one left here, one stone upon another, another that will not be thrown down. And in 70 AD, the temple was destroyed, torn down. If you go there today, around the Temple Mount, you can see there's a place around the corner where the stones are. That used to be on top. It was thrown down. Now, understand God and Isaiah are not saying that building <laughs> that building churches and temples is wrong. But I think sometimes today, I think too many times churches get too focused on their building. They call it the church when the church is sitting right here in these pews. We are the church, not the building. This is just where the church meets. There's a danger in every created tool that we use to worship God. You know, the kids were asking me about, I was running through some questions. I'm, I'm putting together a video of, of a Bible quiz to put on one of my, my YouTube pages. And one of the questions was, what is the significance of the snake in the wilderness? And they're like, what's that? 
started telling the story about the snakes that were biting the, uh, the Israelites. And they remembered the story there. I said, remember what God told Moses to do? God told Moses to take a snake, make it out of bronze, put it on a pole, and set it up. And whenever the Israelites were bit and they'd look at the snake, they would be healed. The minute they looked away from the snake, they would start suffering. And that is a symbol. See, now if you take the test, you're going to know the answer to this one. That was the symbol of the sacrifice of Christ. Because it was lifted up. Now, as time went on, we find out in Scripture that they started to worship the snake instead of worshiping God. Any tool we have can become a stumbling block to our worship. Whether it's the style of music, a piece of furniture, the building, doesn't matter. We can easily turn from biblically authorized worship to the the one true God to a false worship like that. There's no building, no matter how magnificent, that can contain God and that God has to respect. God fills the immenseness of the universe with his presence. So any earthly building is just going to pale in comparison. No matter how immense or how extravagant, it's nothing to God. In fact, I would argue that most churches are monuments to man instead of a monument to God. The heavens the heavens are God's throne. Our attempt at capturing the magnificence of God, and that's, if you go to the, I've been to St. Patrick's Cathedral in New York City, and you walk in, and it takes your breath away. The immense, I mean, you look, our, our building is tall. Multiply that by 10. That's how tall the cathedral is. And you look up, and you're just like, oh, wow. And the stained glass along the walls. It's inspiring. It's awe-inspiring, yes. And it was a great attempt. That's the whole point of the, of the, of the, of the um, cathedrals was to make people feel small because God was so great. But while they may take our breath away, God is not impressed. Because look what he says in verse 2. Of Isaiah 66. He says, All these things my hand has made. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord, but this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. You want to know what God is impressed with? He's impressed with the humble, the contrite in spirit, and those that tremble at his word. The very materials that we use to create our buildings, the very materials that were used to create this this sanctuary, they're his already. He created them. Before we even started making plans, they belong to him. What impresses God is not the splendor of our churches or the musical quality of our worship. What impresses God is our heart attitude when we worship him. You could be someone who can't carry a tune. Okay? Can't, Can't even hit the right note. And if your heart's in the right place, God adores your worship. And believe me, I will too. I will not tell you not to stop singing if you are singing out. I won't stop it. What captures his attention is broken-hearted humility. 
and a heart that trembles at his word. Do you understand that? Have you ever been reading scripture and it just makes you sit there and go, oh my gosh, God is so magnificent. God is amazing. See, we could do all the right things in worship. Everything could be perfect, have the perfect call to worship, the perfect songs, the perfect prayer in between, the perfect things said in between songs. That's why sometimes I just don't say anything in between songs. I could. I'm a pastor. I could talk for hours. (laughs) But I don't because I don't want to draw away from the words of the songs. Everything that we think, we could check every single box of what we think worship should be. And it still becomes false worship when your heart is not in the right place. If it doesn't move your heart, it's false worship. Now, today, I think humility is a rare commodity, especially in the world. Even within the churches, it's a problem. We're very culture-centric in our churches. We've moved away from preaching about sin and repentance, and we move instead, we teach about how awesome you are and, and how you can get through this week, how, you know, all the, all the idea of the, the self-improvement ideas. You know, what do you need to do to live a blessed life now? You know, have your greatest life now. I'm not so sure I want to have my greatest life now because the next life is supposed to be the greatest life, and if my life is great now, what's that going to be like if this life's better? (laughs) It'll be worse. I don't want that. See, God is searching for hearts that are deeply aware of their sins. And they understand the holiness of God. They understand that I'm, I'm unrighteous. I'm, I'm a sinner. I just don't deserve to stand in the presence of God. But by the grace of Jesus Christ and because of the sacrifice he made for me, I can. We need to understand that all of our righteous acts will never be enough to save us. I could give away all my money to the poor. I could spend all my hours helping the poor. I could spend all my time with the sick. If my heart is not humble and if I'm not contrite and I don't tremble at God's word, it's worthless. In fact, God says that those who are humble and contrite in their heart and in their spirit, they're going to be blessed. Look at Matthew 5, the Beatitudes. Matthew 5, 3 through 6 says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those that hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. It won't be out here that we find our righteousness, if we hunger and thirst for it. It's going to be the righteousness that God imputes upon us because of what Christ did. That's what we're going to find. We have to be careful not to sit back in our services and rate, you know, how has this service met my needs? Because it's not about your needs. You know, sometimes people will take a sip here, take a sip there, find what they like. You know, I've been to, been to a coffee house where they, they bring you out this, this, the, this board that has all these coffees on it. They're usually about that much coffee. And then you, ooh, I like that one. Ooh, I like that one. We have a tendency sometimes to do that with church. Oh, I like this church, I like that church, I like this here, I like, I like this, I like that. Oh, I don't like to go that Sunday because they do that. It's not about that. It's about, is, am I humble? Am I contrite in spirit? Do I tremble at the word of God? 
if we worship God as defined as we as, as God has defined worship, we're going to humble ourselves and we're going to receive it with eagerness that makes us tremble. And when we do this, we get to receive something more than we could ever imagine. James was the half brother of Jesus. Was leader of the church in Jerusalem. He says, therefore, in James 1.21, says, therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your soul. And the word he's talking about is the gospel. A soul that hungers for God will be the culture of the new heavens and the new earth. And when the new heavens and the new earth comes down, we're going to hunger and thirst for God. So why not? Why don't we do that now? Why don't we capture that idea now? Hunger and thirst for the word of God. Hunger and thirst for the righteousness and the presence of God. Because the other option is the false worship. And in Isaiah 66, 3 and 4, he talks about this. He says, he who slaughters an ox is like one who kills a man. Remember that the Jewish worship at that time, the Israelite worship was about sacrificing, so you would have to bring your, your, your animals, your, your pure animals, and it was a sacrifice for you to do this. It was usually the firstborn animal a lot of times, and you'd have to take a portion of your, your wine, a portion of your wheat that you gathered, the first fruits, and you had to bring them to the temple and sacrifice them. It says, the one who slaughters an ox is like one who kills a man. He who sacrifices a lamb like one who breaks a dog's neck. He who presents a grain offering like one who offers pig's blood. Pigs could not be sacrificed. They are an unclean animal. In fact, Jewish people were not even allowed to eat pig. Mm, no bacon. I don't know if I could do that. Uh, he who makes memorial offering of frankincense. Like one who blesses an idol. These have chosen their own ways and their soul delights in their abominations. I also will choose harsh treatment for them and bring their fears upon them because when I called, no one answered. When I spoke, they did not listen. But they did what was evil in my eyes and chose that in which I did not delight. What does God delight in? He delights in one who is humble and contrite and trembles at his word. In these verses, God is condemning two things. He's condemning, first of all, the Pharisee-type religion. You understand that throughout the Old Testament, the Pharisees are not there. The Pharisees was something new that happened during the during the intertestamental time, during the, the time, those years when the Bible is silent. The Pharisees came into being, and they changed everything. And this is a preemptive strike on them, I believe. The Pharisee type of religion, which is legalistic, and the religious system that syncretizes itself with the false religions of the world, which I think was, we're having a problem today. We're syncretizing ourselves sometimes with the things of this world. If you, you know my position on the Enneagram, the Enneagram is a pagan tool created by spirit writing. I've done the research. I've, done, I've read three book, two books on it. I've watched many videos on it. And I also know that there are churches, even within our denomination, that use it. That's syncretism. That's synchronizing our religion with paganism. It's dangerous. It's wrong. Yes, I have confronted the leadership of the, or the region about it, and I didn't get anywhere. So that's, I'm going to keep doing it. I'm going to keep confronting them. But he's condemning that. He's condemning this idea that we can syncretize ourselves with the world just to make it seem a lot more palatable to our world. 
The legalistic Pharisaic religion observes the law on the outside, but inwardly they were corrupted. When Jesus was talking to them, I mean, he didn't pull punches when it came to the Pharisees. He says, woe to you, in Matthew 23, he says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. The church at Corinth was a, is a great example of syncretism. The people, they would participate in pagan festivals. And you must understand, you know, I'm, I'm not talking against Halloween or Christmas or Easter. I'm not, that's not what I'm talking about. No, they would talk, usually the pagan festivals included debauchery and a lot of sexuality. Let's put it that way. And they would participate in it fully. And then come and meet in church and say, well, everything's fine. They accepted immoral behavior of that was inappropriate for members of the church. They had a young man, they had a man there who had married his stepmother. And Paul told him, you need to, you need to put an end to this. Ultimately, just so you know, they did. And the man was reconciled back to the church after he and his stepmother stopped having relationships. They created divisions and fractions within the church. This is common today in, in churches. It's common today in our denominations. They misunderstood the purpose of the Lord's Supper. They would come, they would have a supper, the actual meal, and, and they would, those that had their food would just start eating without even thinking about those who didn't have anything. And they misused the spiritual gifts in their worship, leading to confusion and disorder. Paul never says that speaking in tongues is wrong. What he says is there's a way to do it, and the right way to do it is with order. I was going to show you some videos of some crazy stuff happening. I just don't need to. There needs to be order in worship, order in the service. But I'm afraid that many churches and denominations are more like the church at Corinth than we might like to think. See, our, our pattern of religion and worship mean nothing if our hearts are not broken in humility and if we don't tremble at God's word. So we, we, we decide we need to choose a certain path. We need to choose a path. But God chooses the end. And the terrible end it will be for us if we do not repent of our sins and turn away from ourselves and go to the cross and go to the empty tomb. Because salvation is found nowhere else. Because of that, there's going to be persecution. Verse 5 and 6 says, Hear the word of the Lord, you who tremble at his word. Your brothers who hate you and cast you out for your name's sake have said, let the Lord be glorified that we may see your joy. But it is they who shall be put to shame. The sound of an uproar from the city, a sound from the temple, the sound of the Lord rendering recompense to his enemies. We have to remember that the first Christians were Jews, were Jewish, and the first persecutors of the church were Jewish. The world's going to hate us, yes. But I'll be honest with you, there'll be people in the churches who will hate us. They'll hate our humbleness, our contriteness, because those things are striking contrast to their evil and their unrighteousness. The Apostle John wrote in 1 John 3, 12 to 13, he says, we should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? 
because his own deeds were evil and his brothers righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. And I'm not saying that we need to condemn them and say, look how good we are. No, we just say, look how bad we are and look how gracious Christ is. And we need to stay firm, be planted in God's word, and we need to be humble and contrite in spirit, which means when we're dealing with those who are persecuting us, we are humble and we're contrite in spirit. Because our, our, our outcome is not going to be that we're going to overpower them, that we're going to win out in the end. In the end, it's God who brings the judgment, not us. Verse 7, before, he talks about instantaneous birth. Before she was in labor, she gave birth. Before her pain came upon her, she delivered a son. Who has heard such a thing? Who has seen such things? Shall a land be born in one day? Shall a nation be brought forth in one moment? For as soon as Zion was in labor, she brought forth her children. Shall I bring to the point of birth and not cause to bring forth, says the Lord? Shall I, who cause to bring forth, shut the womb, says our God? Is he going to stop people coming to Christ? No, it's going to happen till the end. We see, see here again, like in Isaiah 54, that Zion is being portrayed as a woman giving birth. Remember, that was the woman giving birth and the dragon waiting to devour the child. At Pentecost, the church was birthed in one day. 3,000 people were added in one day. From all over the Roman Empire. And from there, the gospel spread like wildfire. See, when God pours out his spirit, and the gospel of Jesus Christ is preached, people believe. Verse 10 says, Rejoice with Jerusalem and be glad for her, all you who love her. Rejoice with her in joy, all you who mourn over her, that you may nurse and be satisfied from her consoling breasts, that you may drink deeply with delight from her glorious abundance. For thus says the Lord, Behold, I will extend peace to her like a river, and the glory of the nations like an overflowing stream. And you shall nurse, and you shall be carried upon her hip, and bounced upon her knees. That's us. We are the children of Israel. We have been grafted into the vine. We are, we are not natural-born children of God. We have been adopted. But he's talking about us. As one whom his mother comforts, so will I comfort you. You shall be comforted in Jerusalem. You shall see, and your heart shall rejoice. Your bones shall flourish like the grass. And the hand of the Lord shall be known to his servants, and he shall show his indignation that word out, against his enemies. See, God's going to pour comfort through the ministry of the church to the world that is hurting and is being deceived. See, many times it feels like the church is inadequate, that we, we can't do it, that we can't even complete the task ahead of us. But God will end our mourning and our ineffectiveness Right now it seems like we're kind of muddled. The church seems kind of struggling where it's at. Unsure of where we stand. We are either entering true worship or settling for false worship that's disguised as true worship. Good intentions, they don't matter. What matters is where we are in God's sight. And God's offering us new life and amazing comforts that if we don't take that, if we draw back away from it, there's only one alternative. It's black and white. It's either God or it's the other way. 
witness of what it says in verse 15. For behold, the Lord will come in fire, and his chariots like the whirlwind, to render his anger in fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire will the Lord enter into judgment, and by his sword with all flesh, and those slain by the Lord shall be many. Those who sanctify and purify themselves to go into the gardens, following one in the midst, eating pig's flesh, and the abomination and mice shall come to an end together, declares the Lord. He's saying, Lord, he's saying those who are worshiping falsely, who are not humble and contrite, who do not tremble at my word, I will come and I will deal with them. He's going to deal with false worship forever. He's going to complete his mission of, of ridding the world with idols and false worship. Isaiah is actually talking about Christ here, the return of Christ. Paul wrote in 2 Thessalonians 1, he says, And to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. God's going to, Christ is coming back. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of their eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. But until that time, God is calling everyone. Verse 18 of Isaiah 66. For I know their works and their thoughts. The time is coming to gather all nations and tongues. And they shall come and they shall see my glory. And I will set a sign upon them. And from them I will send survivors to the nations, to Tarshish, Pool, and Lud. Tarshish was the farthest, on the other side of Spain, is on, like where Portugal is. That was considered the farthest ends of the earth. Who draw the bow to Tubal and to Javan, to the coastlands far away that have not heard my fame or seen my glory. This is God saying he's going to send out. He's going to send out the 144,000 to go out. And they're Jewish, by the way, because they're from the 12 tribes. To evangelize the world. They shall declare my glory among the nations, and they shall bring all your brothers from all the nations as an offering to the Lord, on horses and in chariots and litters and on mules and on, on dromedaries, to my holy mountain Jerusalem, says the Lord, just as the Israelites bring their grain offering in a clean vessel to the house of the Lord. He's saying the whole world is going to go to Jerusalem. Some of them also I will take for priests and for Levites says the Lord. See, right now, God is calling. We are spreading the gospel. There have been some amazing times of, of revival and amazing things happening where we've, we've shared the gospel and whole tribes, all nation, whole nations have, have come to Christ. That is our goal. That is our job. That is our commission. Sometimes our whole universe next door, which is our neighbor, that's who we're supposed to reach. God is calling them. He's assembling the nations to come and to see his glory. The only way to come is to see and to see him is through faith in Christ alone. And he has set a sign amongst the nations, and that sign is Jesus Christ on the cross. And that sign is going to lead to faith in Christ and will ultimately lead us to come to Zion. And those who answer today, who answer that call, will become priests to the Lord. In Revelation, we see the vision that Isaiah is speaking about. Revelations 5, 9 through 10 says, And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seal, for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God, for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom of priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. So we have a choice eternal life 
or eternal death. Verse 22. For as the new heavens and the new earth that I shall make remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain. From new moon to new moon and from Sabbath to Sabbath, all flesh shall come to worship before me, declares the Lord. And they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me. For their worms shall not die, their files shall not be quenched, and they shall be in abhorrence to all flesh. What a chilling end to Isaiah. The chapter starts by confronting false worship and ends with celebrating endless true worship of God. But it also ends with the final destiny of those who rebelled and refused to answer God's call and to trust in Jesus Christ. He's talking about hell here. So what is hell? Hell is hearing Jesus say, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. That's hell. Hell was never meant for, for humanity. Heaven was supposed to be mankind's eternal home. But God doesn't force anybody to come. It's a choice. And many have chosen the course of self-salvation that leads to rejection of God and ultimately to the lake of fire. See, hell is for those who believe that they are too good that they don't need Christ. It'll be full of people who think they are good enough. Heaven will be for those who know that they are not good and they're not good enough and that they need Jesus. Humble yourselves. Worship God. Tremble at the word of God. Tremble at the fate of those who choose the world over Christ. See, the whole message of the book of Isaiah is repent for the kingdom of God is near. Today is the day of your salvation.